Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Hello and welcome to episode 14. I have just been having the best time with this podcast and I hope that you are enjoying yourself as well. We've had some incredible guests and I am very excited for this week's guest. It's like no one we've ever had before. Stephen Cutler, he is an absolute genius. Not saying that our other guests weren't geniuses, but Stephen studies the brain. He studies how science and culture work together. He has written six books. He's been in 70 publications, which basically is every publication you can think of. And today we talk about productivity and flow. So you know what it's like when you're in the flow. You're just in the zone. Things are working. Time seems to pass by slowly and you get so much done or it passes by really fast before you know it. You've done so much and you look up and it's really late. You are just in the zone. Sometimes we have those moments and other times we feel like we are hitting our head against the wall. So how do we create a situation in our life where we can experience more flow? How do we deal with life after we have an experience of flow? How do we have it again? All of these questions are going to be answered. I love the way that Stephen approaches this topic. He's incredibly knowledgeable. My favorite part was when he talks about the uncomfortable moments before flow. I felt like that was such a relief to hear. And I also thought it was funny when I asked him about the flowers that showed up at my door. In a moment, you'll know what I'm talking about. He thinks it's my brain just recognizing a pattern. And I still think it's magic, and I'm totally cool with that. So enjoy this interview. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So it's a casual it's a casual show. It's a lot of fun. I thought we could just dive in. Good with me. Good with you. Okay, cool. Well, uh, the thing that's really tough about interviewing you, Stephen, is that you've, you're so freaking smart. That's a technical term. You've written six books, you've been published in 70 publications, and you're someone who really dives deep into the big questions. So it's kind of hard to figure out. I just sit and think, okay, what do I want to ask him? I think what so many of us want to know, and I know my audience wants to know, is how to be more productive and more creative in their everyday lives. You know, it seems like it seems like a simple ask, but you know, it's like we always have the intention to be productive and we often find ourselves being uh, disappointed. So when it comes with, to productivity, you wrote in your book, The Rise of Superman, about flow. I'd love to start that there. What is flow and how does it relate to productivity? Perfect place to start. So <laughs> flow states are technically defined as optimal states of consciousness. They're states of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. Right. And more colloquially, what that means is lower those moments of rapt attention and total absorption where you get so fixated on the task at hand, so lost in what you're doing that everything else disappears. And, you know, there are characteristics to this disappearance, our sense of self, 
our sense of self-consciousness, they vanish completely. Time passes very strangely. We lose, uh, we basically lose the past and we lose the future and everything's kind of condensed down in this deep now. What that feels like, you know, is time will speed up. So five hours, five hours will go by in like five minutes or what happens when we sit down to write that quickie email only to look up a couple hours later to realize, you know, we've written a whole, written a whole essay. Or occasionally time will slow down and we'll get a freeze frame effect familiar to any of you who's been in a car crash. Mm-hmm. And throughout all of this, all aspects of performance, and that's mental and physical, go through the roof. Now, you specifically asked about productivity. Um, so that, a big picture, just, just to kind of put give some numbers around this, uh, McKinsey did a 10-year study of top executives, and they found that top executives are five times more productive in flow than out of flow. Five times more productive is 500% more productive. What it really means is you could go to work on Monday, spend Monday in a flow state, take Tuesday through Friday off, and get as much done as your steady state peers. If you spent two days a week in the flow, you'd be a thousand times more productive than the competition. It is a massive up-leveling. But there's also there's an added benefit to this, and that's, I think, really at the heart of your question, which is, you had, you, as you pointed out, we were great at putting a lot of things on our to-do list, we're lousy at checking them off, right? right? And that's a motivational problem. And here, flow is extraordinary. And um, I'm not going to go into the science very much, but over the past 25 years, flow science has gotten very, very sophisticated. And one of the things we've learned is six different, very potent neurochemicals underpin the state. These are all the performance-enhancing chemicals primarily, but they're also feel-good drugs. And they're literally the six most potent feel-good drugs the brain can produce. What this means is flow is essentially the most addictive state on Earth. Researchers hate the term addictive, so they have invented autotelic, which means an end in itself. But what it means is once an experience starts producing flow, we go really far out of our way to get more of it. So researchers now talk about flow as the source code of intrinsic motivation. And if you think about most of our lives today, most of the time, the big motivators we go after are guilt and vanity. Oh, I should be doing that. Or Mm -hmm. if I go to the gym, I'll look, but you know, those kinds of things, they're lousy motivators. They don't last long, right? Gyms make all their money by selling memberships in January based on new year's resolutions that, and nobody's showing up in February. And that's, and, and that's not, you know, that's, that's how they make their money. That's actually, you know, written into business plans of health club because these are lousy motivators. Flow is an intrinsic motivator. It's the most powerful intrinsic motivator on earth. And we've all seen this in action, right? Think about uh, the, the example I love to talk about is surfers. Because if you think about your typical surfer's stereotype, they're not considered the most widely motivated group of people on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. Yet... Um, if there are overhead tubes breaking off a point in Malibu, folks are there at four o'clock in the morning, strapping on into cold, clammy wetsuits and paddling through freezing water so they can surf because surfing is an activity that produces a tremendous amount of flow. We see this in business in coding. Software coding is, in, is something that requires a massive amount of flow. There are chapters in, in coding books written about how important flow is to coding. And when you see the designers stay up five days straight to finish a piece of software. It's not warm beer and cold pizza keeping everybody going. It's that the experience generates massive amounts of flow, and we can't wait to get more of it. 
So when you're looking at what flow does to productivity, it massively amplifies productivity because it massively drives motivation. So if it's so addictive, and I know everybody has had that experience of feeling that they're in the flow, but then it's like this, they try to get back there and they can't. So they go to the, what you said, kind of criticizing themselves, shaming, guilting themselves into it. If that's not working, how, and and we know we want flow, how can we begin to create that? So what we've learned in the past 25 years, because neuroscience has been accelerating like mad, right? And so we've managed to peek under the hood of flow. We know what's causing it in the brain and the body, or we're starting to get a really good sense of what's causing it in the brain and the body. But more importantly, we've identified 18 triggers. These are preconditions that create more flow, right? And these 18 triggers are essentially your flow toolkit. You want more flow in your life, these are the things you can do to get more flow. Do you need to use all 18? No. So this is, um, the triggers fall into various categories and nine of them are individual flow and nine of them produce group flow, which is the kind of the shared collective version of a flow state. So if you've ever sung in a church choir or played in a band or seen it when like an improv comedy group comes together or seen it when a band comes together or, or taken part in a great brainstorming session, right? That's, those are all examples of group flow. Um, and so there are 10 triggers for group flow and eight triggers for individual flow. And no, you don't have to apply them all at once. Two, three, four seem, uh, seem to be enough. Um, and I, the other thing I want you to know is, for example, the Flow Genome Project, which is my organization, we run a Flow Fundamentals course. It's an online, it's a digitally delivered six-week course where essentially all we're doing is training people to work with these triggers. A couple hundred, I don't know how many, a couple hundred people have gone through the course at this point, uh, maybe more. And the average person is reporting a five-fold increase in flow. And we've had enough people go through that uh, we've got data that's almost a year out now. And people are reporting that, that level, the level of flow is increasing over time, not decreasing. So they're getting better at it, which is what you would expect because it's a skill, right? It's not this mysterious, you know, weird ephemeral state that, that we thought it was. It's talked about as an altered state of consciousness and it seems very tricky, but no, it's, you know, it's a skill like any other. That's incredibly interesting. And also that idea that we can begin to train ourselves to have more flow. So what you're saying is the more practice we have in finding that state, the easier it becomes. Yes. Now I want to big important caveats. (laughs) Okay. And, and, And so there is some, the other thing that you need to know is that flow is not a binary. It doesn't work like a light switch. You're either in the zone or out of your, out of the zone. It's actually a four-stage process, and you have to move through all four of these stages to kind of get back into flow again. Some of these stages are really sticky. On the front end of a flow state is a struggle phase. This is essentially a loading phase where you're loading the brain with information. Flow is what happens when a bunch of skills come together all at once and you just level up, right? But you still have to learn those skills and kind of internalize that stuff, and that takes place in this front-end state, this struggle phase. You can be in struggle on certain projects for a variety of reasons that can be totally out of your control for a very long time. You can get stuck there for months. I, I, you know, I, I'm gotta be one of the best at the world at this stuff. And I am working on a really hard book right now. And I've probably spent eight or nine months in struggle without a whole hell of a lot of flow to help my writing along. It's right. going to happen. But so are you saying though, that even though it's lasting long, that's an essential piece to get you to flow? 
it's an essential piece to get through the flow. And the truth of the matter is what the majority of what we do. The, so let me walk you through the flow cycle. You have a struggle phase, then you have a relaxation phase, then you have the flow state itself. And on the back end, there's a recovery phase. Most of what we do at the Flow Genome Project is teach people to struggle more gracefully and recover more thoroughly and deeply. That's where the biggest levers, meaning those 18 triggers, you need to work with them and practice, but you're still, you're not going to avoid the hard parts. Um, flow is a huge high, but like anything else, what goes up must come down. It can be followed by a deep low. And you're, you, ha you have to learn to work in uncomfortable spots. A lot, of, a lot of getting good at flow is getting good at being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes, yeah, so releasing the judgment we have as to around the struggle. So when we're able to see that big picture, if we're able to look at this as a process of getting us where we want, there's much less judgment of saying, well, this must mean that I'm completely stuck. Yeah. I often, um, let me take it one step farther for you. You're absolutely correct. I often always tell people that when it comes to flow, when it comes to kind of the source code of ultimate performance, your emotions don't mean what they think, what you think they mean. For example, what is actually happening in struggle from a, if you look under the hood, right, is you are loading and then overloading the brain with information. By overloading the brain with information, what I mean is we all have a working memory. It's all the stuff you can think about at once, right? So if I'm trying to write a book, my working memory can't hold the whole book at once. It's too small. Most of our most people literally tap out at about four items. So in struggle, we're loading and overloading the brain, meaning we're overtaxing the working memory. Once you start kind of trying to learn more stuff than your brain has the capacity to hold, it gets really frustrating. We get frustrated. Normally, people get frustrated, right? They take it as a sign of defeat. In flow hacking, it's a sign that you're moving in the right direction, right? So as it doesn't change the emotion, right? It still feels crappy, but the meaning is totally different because it's actually like the more frustrated you're getting, the closer to success you're actually getting. I'm literally writing this down. Frustration is a sign that I'm moving in the right direction. I, everyone needs to have that up on their wall uh, or in front of their desk. So we know that, so we're learning how to be more graceful. It seems like a big part of being graceful is to have that acceptance around it uh, and not judging it so much. I want to talk a bit about some of the triggers that can help us get into flow as individuals. So we're by ourselves. We have to work on our project. What uh, on a project? What are some things that? What are some triggers that we can use? Okay. So the best place to start, broad outline. When we talk about triggers, there are three environmental triggers or external to the body. Right. There are three internal or psychological triggers. There's a creative trigger. And then there are those 10 social triggers I talked about. So let's ignore the social triggers and let's just kind of focus in on the ones that we can play with. The most important are the psychological triggers. They're the easiest place to start. And the first one is often called the golden rule of flow. And it's what's known as the challenge skills balance. And the idea here, so let me phrase this emotionally first. Flow follows focus, right? Mm -hmm. It is a state where all of our attention is focused in the present moment. So all of these triggers are really just ways of driving attention to the now. They're focusing skills, right? They're focusing hacks is really what they are. More technically, they're the 18 things evolution shaped your brain to pay the most attention to, right? So you're using evolutionary biology to your advantage when you're hacking flow. 
we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds, exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch but not snap. Or emotionally, to go back to where I started, flow shows up on the midpoint or near the midpoint between boredom, hey, there's not enough stimulation here, I'm not paying attention, and anxiety, whoa, way too much stimulation, there's too much fear, this is you know screwing up my focus, right? The sweet spot is the point at which we're outside of our comfort zone, right? We push past our comfort zone. So people who are a little under-motivated, it gets tricky because you're, you, you, you're definitely outside your comfort zone. You're, put, you're stretching your skill set. Um, but the secret and for most people who are kind of listening to your podcast and really want better you know, productivity and high performance out of their life, the problem is they're trying too hard and they will take on challenges that are so much bigger then they can actually handle it at that point and it will kick them out of flow and they won't like, and flow is the very thing you need to be able to tackle those Herculean challenges. So I'm not saying don't take on the big challenges, but chunk them down into manageable steps. And that actually gets us to the next psychological trigger, which is known as clear goals. Um, those are manageable steps, but the emphasis here. Westerners especially, you say goals to them and that's where they focus. And the focus here is really unclear. You, if you want to maximize focus in the present moment, you want to know what are you doing now and what are you doing next? That's as far as it matters. So if you talk to, say, professional surfers about how they do this, they will tell you that they chunk a wave down into, okay, I want to paddle really hard until I can feel the wave surge underneath me. I want to you know, quick paddle a couple of times to push myself into the wave. Then I want to jump to my feet. And those are three individual clear goals, right? It's that small. So you mentioned a big project. Let me, in my own life, how this works for me with writing is I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, today I'm going to write a kick-ass chapter. I wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to try to write 500 good words. Because 350 good words, I can do easy, no matter what my mood is, no matter how creative I'm feeling, no matter whatever, I can, you know, I can put, put together three, four good paragraphs for you. But that extra 150 words, that's often a stretch. That often makes me, that's the point at which I have to bridge to the next idea. Mm -hmm. So I have to do some fancy footwork. It's out, I'm slightly outside my comfort zone. Very clear goal. It's very attainable. I can get there in a two hour work session. Um, and, you know, if I end up writing a thousand words, which happens because I've kicked into flow, great. Um, and if not, you know, it's, 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 it's just a little success. The final one of the psychological triggers is immediate feedback. And this is really, really critical. And this is where I think kind of modern society does a lot of disservices. Right now, for example, most employees, they, have, they don't have daily feedback from their boss. They get quarterly reviews or annual reviews, that sort of thing. There's not enough feedback built in. You want to close the gap between cause and effect. You don't want to wonder, how am I doing on this project? You want to know that you're right where you want to be. And I'll give you an example. So I often talk about, to make this, to bring this home for everybody, considering what you need, what I call the minimal feedback for flow. For me, as a writer, I care about, is my writing boring? Is it arrogant or is it confusing? And I have a guy on my staff whose literal job is to read everything I write almost immediately after I write it and tell me, is it boring, arrogant, or <laughs> right? Because if it's not those things and I'm still kind of on my theme, 
I know I'm going in the right direction and that I, you know, and that everything's okay. Those three things are kind of shorthand for a lot of deeper writing problems and, and whatnot. But the important point here is figure out what the minimal feedback you need for kind of your major, you know, job is. And if you don't, if you can't get it from your employer or that sort of thing, find a buddy, go on the buddy system with somebody else and, you know, review each other's stuff for these purposes. You don't want to spend a lot of time here. You just want the feedback you need to move on, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to wonder, how am I doing? Am I screwing this up? Or, you know, is this right? It's just right there for you. These three triggers will get you very, very far along. What I love about the the now and next is really jumping out at me because I know that oftentimes when there's a big project or someone is thinking about a big project, what stops them is this idea of, I don't have it all figured out though. So let me just sit here and think about every step and see how I'm going to make this whole thing work. You're saying all you have to do is figure out now and next. Well, so the other, the, yes. And there's a second reason for all the reasons you just said and one more that's really important. And again, not going to go into too much neuroscience, but when we're in flow, all of the brain's fundamental information processing skills, pattern recognition, information acquisition, future prediction, et cetera, et cetera, are massively amplified, really, really, really jacked up. We are much smarter in flow and we're much more creative in flow. There's data all over the place. Average, uh, average people are reporting a 500 to 700% boost in creativity while in flow. So it's a step function worth of difference, huge, huge change. So not only do you, is it now and next because that will drive flow. When you're in flow, you're going to have the most expansive view affordable of your project. That's when your big ideas are going to come. That's when you're going to see the outline. Sometimes you just need to know, like, where am I now and what do I have to do next? And then once you get there, it's an emergent property and it's an altered state. So it's hard to trust it until you work with it for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Some of this some of the really important stuff here, like everything else, is you kind of got to believe in your own magic, right? This stuff is, it's an altered state. It's strange. It's a little peculiar. And you have to conduct the experiment yourself and see this for yourself over and over and over again to trust that it'll happen. But once you, once you get a sense of it, you really know what's coming. And you're, so you don't stress as much. It keeps you calmer as well because right? you're like, okay, I'm going to get into flow. And these problems are going to solve themselves. I have a friend who has starting her own business and one of the struggles she's having is that she's getting in her flow state really late at night. So, you know, she has about 30 employees during the day. She's managing them. She's answering questions. She's making sure everything's running. Then she'll try to work during the day is not as successful really late at night. It's she gets into the flow and the problem is that she doesn't sleep. So it's causing you know, she's, and so she's, she was complaining to me saying, well, how do I get that flow state? Why does it always seem to come late at night? And I know I'm a morning person, so I, I find that I'm more in flow really early in the morning. But do you see that? Do you see that people tend to have an easier yeah, time so going I, in the States? It's a, it's a really important point. And there's two ways. There's, there's a couple of things here that are worth pointing out. First and foremost is flow follows on interrupted concentration, right? So you need time that you can take out of your life and shut off your cell phone, shut off the email, shut, shut off instant messaging, not look at social media, turn off the television, et cetera, et cetera. I get up at 4 a.m. 
and I write from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. every morning because nobody's calling me. My phone's not right, right? It's, it's uninterrupted concentration. Works really, really well. In fact, when uh, a bunch of years ago, a couple of researchers went looking for the highest flow state environments they could find on the planet, and one of the things they found was Montessori education because it's built around 90 to 120 minute periods of uninterrupted concentration. So the first thing is, the, one of the reasons your friend loves it late at night is because it's totally shut off, the world's gone away, right? So nothing's jockeying for her time. The other side of this conundrum is what you're pointing at, which is, I'm an extreme lark, right? Your friend's a night owl. It's the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And if that's, some of this has to do with your own internal rhythms. And what we've found, you can fight against it. Your friend can try getting up a lot earlier and see if that works. That works for some people, but I'm married to a, a, a night owl. And no matter what she does, Joy wants to work at night because that's, you know, and it screws up her days. Um, and there's, you know, there, that's a, that is a tricky one. The only thing that I have found is it helps to just be clear with, you know, I, I would tell your friend that, hey, I'll bet the flow that she's getting at night is more important to her business than most of the stuff she's doing during the day. So go in a little bit later, tell her employees what she's doing, work it out that way rather than try to like cut it out of her life if, you, if she can't switch her schedule. Yeah, that's great advice. You mentioned before that when you are when people are going through your program and they're training on how to bring in more flow into their life, you're focusing on the the building, the kind of gracefully dealing with frustration, and then you also mentioned recovery. So what is that recovery side after flow? So there's two sides to this, three sides to it. Um, the first thing to know is that flow is a very expensive state for the brain to produce. It requires a lot, it produces a lot of neurochemistry, all those chemicals are in limited supply in the brain. It takes certain nutrition, certain vitamins, certain minerals, sometimes sunlight, et cetera, et cetera, to get more of them. So there's a finite amount and they will run out. Um, it takes a while for them to bounce back. So the two sides to recovery, there's an emotional side. The emotional side is flow is a huge high. It's just about the best you know we feel on, on the planet. And it has followed by a very deep drop because you've literally exhausted the brain's supply of feel-good neurochemistry. So there is a deep low. So flow requires some serious emotional fortitude and it requires it for a couple of reasons. The first is that, you know, you're in this recovery phase. If you want more flow, you have to move into struggle. And if you're really bummed out when you're in this recovery phase and you're not recovering properly, you're never going to be up for the serious fight of struggle. More importantly, flow massively amplifies learning. In studies run by the U.S. military, uh, we're seeing learning is accelerated by 50%, meaning we can train novices in flow up to an expert level in certain skills in 50% less time. And for that to happen, most of that learning actually takes place in the recovery state. That's where things get locked down. If you get anxious that you're not in flow, your brain is going to start producing cortisol as a stress hormone. It will block learning. So it blocks long-term potentiation, which is basically our ability to, to, to put things into kind of long-term storage, long-term memory. So you'll get the performance boost in flow, but you won't get the long-term benefit of the state. This kind of accelerated learning flow accelerates the path to mastery. 
or to put it, you know, in colloquial terms, what the research shows is Malcolm Gladwell's fabled 10,000 hours of mastery flow can cut them in half. But if you're gripped in recovery, you're not going to be able to do that. And I always say the hangover rule applies. And what the hangover rule is this, if you've been hungover more than a couple of times, you know that when you're hungover, your brain says all kinds of nasty things to yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm hungover. I'm dumb. I'm, you know, ugly. I'm a failure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I've learned because I've been hungover more than a handful of times that I should not pay attention to those voices. I just say to myself, okay, okay, I know I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm dumb, I'm whatever, but I'm gonna deal with all that tomorrow and today we're gonna watch some football, right? It's the hangover rule. You just learn to discount the emotions. You just don't take them so personally and everybody can do this. So that's the first thing you have to do there. The second thing you have to do is really, really recover. Flow is an expensive state. You really need to sleep deeply. Most of us, even those of us who think we're getting eight hours a night, if you put sleep monitors on people, you find that most people average about six and a half hours of good sleep. So one of the things that first things we do at, at, with the Flow Genome Project when we teach a course is we put everybody on sleep monitors and make sure they're getting enough rest. Now, just, just to kind of emphasize the importance of this, this is my favorite statistic about sleep. They did a study and they found they were, they were using how many time zones you move as a measure of sleeplessness, how poorly you're sleeping. And they found that a baseball train team that travels three time zones to play a game, before the first pitch has been thrown, they only have a 40% chance of winning. Wow, that's insane. That's it's insane. That's the actual impact of sleeplessness on performance. And when you're playing with flow, it goes way up. Because, because these states burn a lot of energy, right? And they're also exciting. As you're, one of the other reasons your friend can't sleep at night is when she's in flow, she's getting dopamine and norepinephrine, which are essentially the body's internal version of speed and cocaine, right? They're huge uppers. <laughs> they're, they're big uppers. So, you know, I, I actually had this very problem last night. I went out for a late night mountain bike ride with a friend of mine. And I came back in a big flow state and it was, I basically came back, you know, an hour and a half before bedtime and I was so jacked up. I didn't go to sleep till well past midnight and I woke up at four, no matter, I, no matter what, like my body just wakes up. So I'm, you know, I'm fighting through today on four hours of sleep because I got into a flow state too late. <laughs> yeah. It's like drinking caffeine too late. Absolutely. Well, and I'm happy that you, so you just mentioned you went biking and in The Rise of Superman, you have a lot of examples around extreme sports athletes. You just shared one earlier on surfers, how they get into the flow. If you're able to get into the flow when it comes to sports performance, can that directly impact your ability to get into flow within an office? That's a good question. Yes. Um, and on, on, on three different levels. So the first is, let me, let me give you a great story, Patagonia is one of the corporations, a, a bunch of companies have started to make flow really fundamental to their corporate methodology. Patagonia, the outdoor retailer, was there very early on uh, and have been doing this for a while. Patagonia is run by a guy named Yvonne Chouinard, who's a surfer and a rock climber, and he has a house policy called Let My People Go Surfing. <laughs> Patagonia's corporate headquarters sits right on the Pacific, it's in Oxnard, California. They can see the waves from it. And when the waves are up, anybody can go surfing. And the one reason is quite simply, 
If flow makes you 500% more productive, if you go out, get into a flow state, and then come back into the office, who cares how long you spent surfing? Doesn't matter, right? So wait, but does that same flow state go into the office or you're just able to recreate it again? No, no. That, I, that is example one of it can carry over into the office. Gotcha. Example two is this is a focusing skill. It's training the brain. It's, like a, it's in, in much in the same way that meditation is about focus. Flow is about focus, right? There are different states, meditative states from flow states. There are differences, but there are similarities. It's a trainable skill. And it doesn't, however you train the brain, right? If I can train my brain to focus to get into flow while surfing, I'm grooving neural pathways, right? I'm laying down neural networks. That's going to show up again when you go to the office. I find, for example, whenever, and I, you know, I routinely, you know, go skiing or go mountain biking or surfing or whatnot. This is a, you know, regular part of my life. Um, I know if I got into a flow state on the mountain the next day and probably the day after, I'm going to slide into a flow state while writing. Mm. We also have found, and this is Teresa Amadle's work at Harvard, that the heightened creativity you get in flow actually outlasts the flow state by a day, sometimes two. It's a lingering afterglow effect. So not only are you, can you train the skill you know, in sports for you know, better, better, and by the way, vice versa, right? Getting... Getting into flow at work is going to make you better at whatever activity you're doing as well, sporting activity. Right. Um, but the heightened creativity will outlast the flow state by a couple of days, so you'll get that boost for a couple of days after you've been in flow. So we hear about flow with extreme sports, but what about something like going for a walk? Can you get yourself in a state of flow doing something that isn't so intense? So. Flow is a spectrum experience. It goes from a state of microflow when a couple of flows initial conditions show up, so maybe very focused uh, concentration, maybe action awareness are starting to emerge, all the way up to macroflow, which is when all flow characteristics show up and it's you know low, full-blown, really altered state. So oftentimes, you know, at work, we're getting into microflow states all the time. That's very, very, very common, right? The deeper flow states are harder to access, and it seems like the more you kind of practice with this stuff, the more access you get to the deeper flow states. Right. So it, can a deeper, like say you go, the reason I ask is because when I was working on my book and I would get stuck, I'd either go for a run and sometimes I just go for oh, a you walk. you a walk. I'm sorry. Yeah. So what, what yeah, I'm wondering is. Finish that thought. Point. Yeah. Go ahead. So you go out for a walk and about 25 minutes in, your thoughts start quieting down, Right. That's just natural. It's usually about the time you start to get a little tired, your thoughts start to go quiet. That's the front edge of a flow state, right? There's kind of very precise neurobiology underneath that. You can stay there, right, and just stay at that level, or you can do something to amplify it. For example, I do something where I, if, if I want to get into a flow state when walking, and this, there's complicated neurobiology under each of these steps, but I will go for like a 20, 25 minute walk by myself, not talking with my dogs. And about the time that my thoughts start to quiet down, I will run up a hill as hard as I can, get five minutes of really hard kind of cardio. That will release a different set of neurochemicals than the first walk. I will then follow that by running back down that hill, which has some risk in it and it releases a bunch of other neurochemicals. That combination is enough to kick you into a deep flow state. So low-grade exercise can do it, but there's ways to kind of augment that walk with a couple other things 
that will actually drive you in deeper states. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I want to touch upon creativity. What does creativity have to do with flow? So there's two things. So I have said creativity is a flow trigger, Mm -hmm. and I have said that flow amplifies creativity. What you're looking at is a very tight feedback loop. And so these are some blatant generalities about how creativity works in the brain. But as a general rule, what you're looking at, what what you need for creativity is you need new information coming in. Then you need pattern recognition, which is your ability to find close connections between that new information and some older ideas. And then you need lateral thinking, which is far-flung connections between kind of those new ideas and other things in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. That's essentially a recipe for creativity. The neurochemistry that underpins flow absolutely surrounds that process. And I won't go too detailed into this, but I mentioned earlier you get norepinephrine and dopamine in flow, right? These are focusing chemicals primarily. So when they show up, emotionally we feel them as engagement and attention and excitement, right? Um, but they're focusing chemicals. They're driving attention to the, into the now. Uh, so you're taking in, when they're in your brain, you're taking in more information per second. You're actually getting more novel information on the front end. These chemicals do something else in the brain, which is Technically, they tune signal-to-noise ratios. What that really means is they amplify pattern recognition. When we have these chemicals in our brain, we detect more patterns. We find more connections between ideas. And you get another neurochemical called anandamide that amplifies lateral thinking. So you get more of those far-flung connections. So what happens is creativity, these neurochemicals surround the creative process, right? So that's why creativity is massively amplified. Now... More critically, as I mentioned, I said before, norepinephrine and dopamine, they tune pattern recognition, they amplify pattern recognition. Right. Pattern recognition itself is a flow trigger. When you recognize a pattern, the brain releases dopamine and norepinephrine. And I'll give you an example from your own life. If you've ever done a Sudoku puzzle or a crossword puzzle, you get an answer right, you get that little rush of pleasure afterwards. Yeah. That's dopamine. Have you noticed when you do a crossword puzzle that one right answer tends to lead to two or three in a row. They tend to snowball for a little second. Right. That's because dopamine is amplifying pattern recognition. So that first hit, oh, I detected a pattern. Great, here's some dopamine. But because it's in your system and you notice more patterns, oh, I solved three or four more in a row. Right? It's why creative ideas tend to spiral. One good idea leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. So what, what do you think about... The word, when people say, I I just have a hunch or I'm following my intuition, when you tend to have an idea, but there's, you can't explain it. So you can't logically tell someone why you want to do something. You just have this hunch, this intuition that you want to move in this direction. Is that a pattern recognition that we just can't consciously articulate? Yes. Uh, Well, so it's two things. Thing one is what you're talking about. It's the pattern recognition. So you're talking about in flow, we are trading conscious processing for subconscious processing. Conscious mind is very, very, very powerful, but it's also very, very slow. It's very, very energy inefficient, meaning we burn a lot of calories while thinking. Um, And it's very, very limited in its RAM, right? Your working memory, as I said, taps out for most people up four or five items. Subconscious, meanwhile, very, 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 very fast, like 2,000 times faster than our conscious mind. It has unlimited RAM, basically. 
We have no idea how many things you can learn or memorize. We have never reached the upper limit of what the brain can hold. And it's very, very energy efficient. So subconscious processing, a big part of that is the brain is a giant pattern recognition system, right? So when your subconscious is solving things for you, it's doing it far faster than you can actually process more efficiently and, you know, and touching millions of variables instead of five, right? Mm -hmm. So that's part of the hunch. The other part is what's called embodied uh, cognition, which is we're not just kind of brains on sticks. Turns out that, that, that our brains are, you know, our, our minds, to use the technical term, are distributed throughout the body. There are as many neurons in your stomach as they are in their brains. Why do you get a gut feeling? Because you have a gut brain and it's thinking and it doesn't have access to the language centers that we normally have. So it's giving you a hunch, right? It's your subconscious processing doing all this crazy pattern recognition and you're getting your answer as a hunch because it doesn't have access to the linguistic capacities of the conscious mind. Okay. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's I mean, it explains so often, you know, we go with the woo-woo explanation, but there's this whole science behind yeah, no, it. I mean, the thing about all this stuff is you got to remember for the first 50 years when people were looking at flow states, they thought they were looking at mystical experiences. Yeah. Right? They had no idea. It wasn't Abraham Maslow came along in the 50s and he found flow in this giant study group that happened to be packed with atheists. The vast majority of the study group, they were all atheists. And he was the first person who said, hey, wait a minute. All these atheists are having this mystical experience. Maybe it's not mystical after all. Maybe it's biological, psychological. Right. I think it makes it all the more wonderful. Well, that's the whole, I mean, that's what's great about today is we've moved from mythology to biology, right? We actually went from mythology to psychology to neurobiology. That's really the through line because we had a really good hundred-year picture of these states psychologically. We just didn't understand the mechanism. What we now get is mechanism. Right. Now, but do you feel like if someone believes that, like, then there's random things in the world. I, you know, you're such a science guy. I'm so interested to learn what you think about things that seem so outside of our control. So, for example, my, my boyfriend's dad was coming to visit us for the week. I wanted to get flowers. Forgot. Got the groceries. Got everything else. Didn't get flowers. An hour later, I am walking outside to my mailbox and some random guy comes in a truck and he's like, oh, I volunteer at a hospice and they don't need as many flowers this week. So would you like a bouquet of flowers? And I'm like, that would be amazing. And so all of a sudden I had this intention and now I have this bouquet of flowers. Is it just luck? Is there something else going on? Like, is can your so brain send signals? So there's huge... Huge argument here. And the most skeptical poll um, and, uh, is that, for example, um, we are giant pattern recognition systems. And when we detect a pattern, it's a big deal to the brain. Mm -hmm. So we get a lot of dopamine and norepinephrine and you know, it's overemphasized and that's what you're reacting to, right? And what you're not reacting to is the millions of coincidences that didn't happen. But this one thing happened, and so you've got this big neurobiological reaction because pattern recognition is important to survival, and voila. The other side of the coin is, you know, 
everybody from, you know, young through Heinz Pagels through a lot of people have, you know, talk about synchronicity and what's going on there. And is something, you know, is something more interesting going on there. And, you know, to me, I don't know. I don't think we have all the answers. I don't think mechanism explains all of it, but I don't have an explanation for it. And I'm totally comfortable with that. <laughs> right. I, that goes under the, I don't know. And I, you know, I, and I used to say, I don't know. And I don't think I'd ever find out, but you know, 20 years ago when I got into this, I remember having a conversation with Dr. Andrew Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania, who's one of the first neuroscientists who did really serious flow research. And he had just kind of done one of the foundational studies was like 1997 or 98. And we were talking about it. And I said, do you think we're ever going to solve this flow puzzle? And he said, no, I don't think we're going to solve it in our lifetime. And I had just, you know, this was, I had just spent a year doing a thorough review of all the science and flow. And I said, yeah, I don't think we're going to solve it either. And here we are, you know, 18 years later with a lot of answers. Yes. Yes. Oh, it's so fun. And you know what? I'm, it's great to have the answers and it's great to not have some answers and the excitement of finding them. I mean, how boring would it be if we could solve everything so quickly? Yeah. I mean, our, one of the models that we live by at the flow genome project is don't die wondering. Hmm. Just go out and conduct the experiment yourself. Right. Don't take his word for it. You know what I mean? Like, we don't like, this is, this. don't, don't believe us. Go try this stuff. Yes. Yes. And will you also, you write a lot about curiosity and playfulness as well. It seems like that's the spirit of discovery. It's useful. I mean, it's also useful because we didn't talk about it, but risk taking is another flow trigger. So curiosity is all about kind of following up your risk, taking, you know, that sort of thing. So there's, there, there, there's other stuff built into this, but yes. Right. So I, you know, I definitely want to encourage everyone that's listening to check out all of your books. I mean, the topic today really was, um, based on, uh, the Superman book. Um, no, actually, uh, Flow, well, I, I first wrote about Flow and West of Jesus, which was my second book. I wrote okay. about it again from an evolutionary perspective in Small Furry Prayer. Rise of Superman is my kind of big book about flow science. And then in bold, uh, my la uh, the latest book I co-wrote with Peter Diamandis, uh, we talk about flow and business. So I've actually... I, uh, and you have another book, Tomorrowland, which people should check I have, out. There's seven in total. There's uh, seven. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know which one we've so far, but yeah. And Tomorrowland's the latest, um, which doesn't. It actually doesn't have much flow in it. But what it does, Tomorrowland is a book about the transformation of science fiction into science fact, and it looks at sixteen different instances over the past twenty five years where science fiction has turned into science fact, and kind of the impact that it's going to have on culture, the massive impact it's having on culture. And several of the articles are kind of the early you, you can some of the some of the chapters are actually early looks at what became flow science so there's a there's a chapter on kind of the neurobiology of mystical experience and flow you know until very recently often fell under mystical experiences so kind of the early work is in there so you can there's remnants of flow hidden in everything yeah. i can't avoid it <laughs> that's awesome all right well one one last question. I, I usually go through some silly questions, but I just have one which I always find interesting, and it's, it's random. But if you could be any animal, what would you be and why? Well, you know, my wife and I run a dog sanctuary. I don't know if you know that or not. I didn't know that. That's incredible. We do. 
We do hospice care and special needs care. And by the way, flow is a big part of our healing methodology. Um, but that's a totally different story. We didn't want, we didn't talk about flow and health, but that's a totally different story. Um, so a big part of me would, you know, is super interested in, you know, what a dog's view of the world would be. Mm-hmm. So I'm super fascinated about it, but I, you know, if you're giving me, if you're giving me carte blanche, it's hard not to, you know, want to go Jonathan Levick as a seagull and fly. <laughs> right. not, how do you not fly? Is especially as an action sport athlete, which is really about playing with that gravity. So it's hard not to become a bird of prey. Yes. Yeah. That's you know, uh, Ryan Holiday, who introduced us or connected us. He picked dog, but simply because he doesn't have to fight for food, you know, well, that, he's, he's being right. practical. No, he's right. He's right. He's right about that. What I really would like to be is a flying dog. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. I didn't say it had to be like a real animal. So a flying dog it is. Then I'm a flying dog. Perfect. Steven, this was so much fun. Uh, you're incredible. I'm such a fan. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Jessica, it's my pleasure. 